Welcome back to another episode of Give Me Some Truth. It's Dan with Clint in the Walker Condon podcast studio to talk, well, rather to go down Electric Avenue, Clint. That's right. Uh, you know, we'll play a little bit of... The shaggy version. Now I got to say, sorry to all the Eddie Grant fans, but uh, one thing that you may not know is that uh, if you look on Apple Music and uh, Dan, you're a Spotify guy, um, which I've been thinking about going back to Spotify. But um, anyways, I uh, you can't find it. You can't find like the regular version. You only have the karaoke version. So one has to think there's got to be some sort of deal out there uh, with Eddie Grant holding back Electric Avenue, or maybe somebody owns the rights to the songs because a lot of these guys don't even own the own rights to their songs anymore. So, um, you know, Shaggy apparently is uh, jumping into the vacuum that's been created by no Electric Avenue uh, really being uh, out there on either one of those platforms. It's disappointing. It's one of my uh, one of my favorite songs. Uh Growing up, Electric Avenue is, you might be surprised, is, uh, you know, a, a Gen Z millennial borderline guy over here that Electric Avenue is a song I gravitate to, but it's really disappointing not to see it on uh, any of the two streaming services we use. So, Well, I had some choice words uh, when I was working out the other day, and they were like, hey, we're going to play some uh, oldies, and they played some music from the 80s. I was very angered about that because uh, being born in 1976, I mean, these are not oldies yet. I mean, let's... Let's be honest. You know, the oldies are like 60s, 50s, you know, that sort of stuff. They, I don't know. What would a, a Gen Z millennial call it? music from the 60s then? Just from the Stone Age? They probably just look at you and like, what are the 60s? I mean, what are you talking, 1860? I mean, <laughs> might as well be from the 1860s, right? It's uh, something that, you know, I, you listen to, to oldies music now and it's Marching Ants by the Dave Matthews Band. Um, comes on the radio and you're like 1990s or oldies. I mean, it, it almost makes me feel old to, to think that, you know, stuff from my earliest days is now considered oldies. So I guess I'm, you're not the only one feeling old, Clint. I guess, right? Well, maybe we can go to a Dave Matthews uh, band concert uh, someday when, you know, we're not all socially distancing or maybe we'll show up in a bubble. You know, I guess you're in my, you're, you're in my bubble now. So maybe we can actually hang out at a concert. It's the one thing I'm looking forward to. And the, the thing that's going to take us there, Clint, is an electric vehicle. That's how we're going to get to this, this concert uh, Good. After, after this is all over. And that's our topic of conversation today is the EV market and just everything electric vehicles that's going on right now. And you wrote a blog about it, uh, the year of the electric vehicle. Is it going to be 2021 on the Walkner Condon website? So I guess to start the conversation out, you know, where did that idea come from? And, and what are you seeing when uh, you look at this space right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that what we've seen is if you look at that curve of adoption, uh, we were in an early adopter curve a few years ago and people were buying Teslas and there were some other options out there. There was the Chevy Volt and the Nissan Leaf and, you know, others that were hybrids. Uh, but true electric vehicles have just really begun to be adopted. If you look at the percentages of electric vehicles on the road, it's small. 
uh, still and the amount of charging stations and, um, you know, things that will end up ultimately recharging these cars are not ubiquitous yet. Um, it's a situation where we need a significant amount more infrastructure, but 2021 seems to be the year where there's a confluence of different factors. And as a result of that, you're going to see these car companies that were getting there for producing their first electric vehicle are going to actually come to market. So a couple of those that in mind, um, there was this, uh, there's a Nikola car, there's a, a lucid, um, car, and then there's cars from, uh, you know, your, your big brands like Ford came out with the Mustang and their first, first electric version of the Mustang, which is incredible. Uh, and you're seeing these flagship brands coming out with, uh, these flagship kind of models coming out um, now and saying, hey, I'm, I'm willing now. The technology has gotten there where we're going to stamp that Mustang name on a car that's actually an EV. So I think we've hit that sort of tipping point uh, where you're going to start to see more and more mass adoption of these vehicles. And the number of factors are, you know, obviously, you know, we've got some tax credits on some of these. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. We also have more charging stations than we had a few years ago. That's getting a little easier. The ability to get fast charging inside of your home at a reasonable price, that helps. Um, and the cachet of having electric vehicles um, has reached that sort of peak point where uh, you know it is a sort of luxury sort of thing and it's starting to come down to the mass market um, with more and more of these vehicles. Um, you know, this week, Volvo made a big announcement, um, you know, and there's been other car companies that are really saying, hey, we are taking this electric vehicle thing very, uh, very seriously. And a lot of our fleet is going to make that transition over uh, to electric vehicles. Um, one thing that I found very interesting is that I saw a valuation basically talking about GM. And uh, there was this analyst that said that GM's gas powered business is basically worth zero right now. And I, to me, that's just almost unfathomable thinking that a vehicle powered by gas right now is worth almost nothing to that company and nothing to that valuation of that company. The valuation of GM is really based on the future and their electric vehicle production. Can you take that, that topic a little bit more of valuation? You have a company like, you know, GM or Ford, where you're saying, you know, it's not contributed to their valuation at all. But on the other side, you have Tesla, which is some might say overvalued at this point. Can you just, describe and tell us why that might be, why you see that such a, a difference in, you know, in the same industry like that? Yeah. I mean, the major thing when you buy a stock, if you just break it down to it, when you buy a stock, why do you buy a stock? Well, you're buying really the future earnings of that company. Um, you've seen what's happened in the past and you know that that trite phrase, past performance is not indicative of future results is true in stocks. I mean, you're saying, okay, well, if I want to buy Ford, I'm not buying Ford for yesterday's performance. I'm buying it for uh, tomorrow's performance and tomorrow's performance will be predicated. The stock price will go up if we see earnings increase and margins increase and all of those different things that makes the company, first of all, be a going concern, be able to uh, continue to be a company going forward. And secondly, uh, thrive in a sort of environment. Um, and so with these electric vehicles, you're seeing these valuations of saying in the future, this looks really good. And that's why you are seeing a lot of these companies that have issued stock where they have no earnings. In fact, they are burning cash right now and they have no prospects in the immediate future of making money, actually making a profit. And yet their valuations are in the stratosphere. 
And in many cases, their valuations eclipse that of companies that have been around 40 and 50 years um, that have had massive success over time and they still uh, are still valued above them. So Tesla is valued way more than any other uh, car company right now. It's not even really close. And that's because, um, you know, there is a thought that we're going to see mass adoption of the Tesla name and we're going to start to see a, just a ton of Teslas out there. I'm unconvinced as far as that the fact that Tesla can continue that sort of growth story, but, um, you know, it doesn't matter. It matters what somebody is going to pay for the stock. And, uh, you know, people have run up the value of Tesla. It's gone up exponentially. And obviously that is worth something to, um, you know, to those shareholders. So, uh, they see a, a reason to own the stock. And so they like the story, they like the, you know, present earnings and they like the trajectory of the company. You know, one thing is you look at the, the traditional players in, in the game, companies like Volvo, Jaguar, Land Rover, Ford, I mean, I saw a lot of news in, in prepping for this podcast. Ford's one wants to go fully electric in Europe by 2030. Jaguar is going to go fully electric on on the Jaguars by 2025. Electric for everything by 2030 for all of Jaguar Land Rover. And then Volvo over this week, um, phasing out gas engines by 2030. And they're going to be 50-50 uh, electric and hybrid by 2025. So as you see news like that, you know, within the last couple of months and in some cases in the last couple of days, do you see it as companies like Tesla that are pushing the envelope here? Is it more the traditional companies that are, are pushing the envelope and, and creating this possibility of, of mass adoption? Or how do you see that dynamic? Well, we're right starting now? to see an increase in supply. I mean, that's been the major issue is that uh, getting the battery technology to where they needed it to be for somebody to feel comfortable in their vehicle for an extended period of time. And they've started to get that. I mean, once we hit 300 miles, I think that kind of changed the game too. Um, you know, running around with 150 or 200 miles uh, per charge just wasn't enough for somebody to feel comfortable in their, in their vehicle. And now, you know, with that more extended range, I think that has helped. Uh, additionally, when we look at, you know, companies out there, uh, you know, I think they've been working on the technology for a number of years and they don't want to stamp their brand on, a, on an inferior product. And that is partially why you're seeing these brands with major cachet that are coming out with their EVs. Uh, and then you'll start to see that trickle down into their product lines. They want that big EV that everybody looks up, that really sexy car. And then they can kind of in their mind apply it to that brand. And so one example of this, and this is the coolest car that I've seen in a long time, the electric Hummer that is coming out is incredible. And so you're, you're like, what? A Hummer? The thing, just before you make a judgment on it, just log on to that site, type in Hummer, watch that video, and you cannot tell me that that is not an impressive vehicle and it's incredibly expensive. Um, and they're rolling it out over a number of years. You know, they're, they're announcing that super premium version with the extended, um, you know, the extended mileage and all of that. And it's, it's, it's way over a hundred thousand dollars. And so, but it's just amazing. It's like a Wrangler found a Hummer and it can go anywhere. And it pretty much looks like it could drive on any condition known to man. It, it can actually drive, I think like diagonally it's, it's amazing. So, um, you know, you're starting to see this sort of happen. Um, you know, lucid is going to make some cars that are 
amazing looking. Uh, you know, it's just fun watching all this unfold in front of our eyes. Uh, you know, and there are going to be some really expensive EVs out there. And then eventually I think you'll start to see that the absolute mass adoption. And I know Tesla wants to get there in doing a car that is more reasonable in price, um, kind of a fleet car that's going to become um, adopted uh, throughout the country. And so, you know, Tesla's trying to put themselves there, but you have, cannot discount all of these other, uh, you know, Ford and GM and, you know, all these different companies and, and Volkswagen is doing some great things out there. Do not discount those major uh, car companies in being able to have the resources to get this done. I've just been sitting here watching the, the, the replay of this Hummer video on my laptop and it's, it's something. I mean, the, the first image, it comes across the screen just flying through the desert. Yeah. And you said it's what, 500 range on? I think the long one is like 500. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and what do they say for a price? Do they have the price up there? I mean, it's, it's incredibly expensive, but it's, and then they're going to step down their versions. Um, so I think in like 2024, 2025, it, it, I'm not going to say it gets reasonable in price because I think it's still like 80 grand, but they step down and, and have the the offerings be, uh, first of all, they'll produce a lot more. And second of all, you'll see that, uh, you know, they'll, they'll make it for a wider audience. So the Hummer EV2, which is looking like it's the, the introductory Hummer EV is 79.9. That's not bad. Spring 2024. And then... Fall 2021 rollout of the Hummer EV Edition 1, 112,000. That's the big one. Yeah, that's the one that's going to have all the bells and whistles. That's their flagship. Um, and then I think you can you can buy up in, in things. I think you can get that thing up to about 160 or 180 grand, I, I think, when I was doing a preliminary look at that thing. Because you, you, you want options. I mean, you're not just going to stick with the stock, you know, Hummer, right? So, so bland. <laughs> I think you got to pay up for that. The ability to drive like sideways, you you pay up for that. Is but there a flying upgrade as well? I, you know, coming soon. That'll be the uh, the first vehicle to uh, go airborne. It looks like. I mean, there is a, a video or part of that video is it jumping like a you know a car chase scene in a movie where it's going off of a hill and catches some air um, in a in a city. It looks like so just just hanging out, doing just fine. Just yeah. very. You know, normal, normal, normal EV things. Yeah. Just kind of, you know, you if you're driving around downtown, you your, your Hummer EV. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. You know, I think that one of the things that people were starting to, uh, you know, kind of put with EVs was the self-driving concept because Tesla was so big on that. That's coming. I mean, we'll see that. I think 5G, once we see mass adoption of 5G, you'll see a lot more self-driving capabilities. And you're also going to see fun stuff like the road actually being able to send, signals to the car and, you know, have it be a situation where, um, it's going to get safer and safer where it, it will be adopted widely, but we're a number of years away from that. And EVs are just completely different from self-driving cars. So, um, you know, they have the technology inside of the car, uh, close, uh, but it's that, it's that leap that you got to make. Um, what somebody, there was a futurist that said, like as far as the versions of the car, you know, full self-driving, I think was like number four or number five. Uh, he's like, you don't want to be at number one or number two, where it's like figuring it out with your self-driving car. You want to be at that stage where it's, it's fully autonomous um, and safe. Uh, right now you have uh, quasi full autonomous and uh, somewhat safe. So you're not quite there yet. And so I, I think that people with kids, you know, are just going to be a little bit more careful and, you know, before they, uh, you know, turn on the self-driving thing and have their kids uh, all around, you know, just kind of being carted around. You have the uh, driver instructor brake on the passenger side. Is that the, uh, it's 
pretty much the it. safety version. Yeah, I mean now now you got to hold on to the steering wheel and stuff like that. I mean they they, they require you know even on this full self driving in quotes they re- they require you know the hand of a driver to be on the vehicle every once in a while. Um, you know so it's not full full self driving at this point even. Well, while we're talking about uh, vehicles starting at you know seventy nine thousand or at least one hundred twelve for the, the the first version of that in twenty twenty one. That leads us into tax credits, and you know, before we get too much in the nitty gritty of, of tax credits and in that whole area, can you first lay out just the concept of it, and you know, the the bits and pieces that people should know about how the tax credit program works? Yeah, so you know, the tax credit, just how a tax credit works in general, is that that's ideal for you, um, and the reason why a tax credit is ideal for you is that it's it comes right off the top of your income. Uh, deductions are often subject to how high your income is um, and oftentimes are phased out. So, you know, you might lose, you might have this mortgage interest deduction that you think is great until you earn too much and then you lose part or all of that mortgage interest deduction. But a credit is perfect because a credit just comes right off the top of your income. It's the best kind of thing to have. And so we've had these EV credits for a number of years. There is a situation where there's a limit to the EV credits. I think you said it was what two hundred thousand, Dan. Correct. Yep. Yep. So two hundred thousand is if, once they sell two hundred thousand vehicles, um, the tax credit goes away. So Tesla's uh, two hundred thousand has expired a long time ago. Um, GM's has expired because they made the decision to produce kind of cruddy EV vehicles, and then they ate up all the tax credits. So that's one thing that I would say. That was bad from their perspective um, and why that was a bad decision. You're going to see some of these upstart companies come in and the tax credit will become a big part of their selling proposition because, you know, if you're going with a company that you've never heard of before and, um, you know, maybe you can tell us how much a a Lucid car costs because I love this. Lucid is one of the most beautiful cars you'll ever see. Extremely expensive. You know, one of the selling points might be, hey, we'll give you a tax credit on that vehicle. That is a wonderful thing uh, for the people that buy those. Uh, the issue with that is that you are paying a lot of money for a car company you have never heard of, has no track record, has no, you know, you don't know how reliable that vehicle is going to be. It's kind of scary. So the tax credit might help mitigate that a little bit. Um, but, you know, we're seeing some incredible things going on from a lot of these different companies. The Airdream Edition from Lucy, which is the one they're trying to roll out, I think by spring is their their target date for, um, you know, getting it up to the production quota, but 161.5. Is the air dream. So hopefully it is, it is safe and reliable at that price. <laughs> Beautiful car though, isn't it? I mean, it's crazy. And the interesting thing about reading about that is that um, the, the CEO and CTO of Lucid was a former Tesla employee who worked on the, I think it was the two or the three um, oh. for Tesla. So um, yeah, he's, it kind of looks a little bit like a Tesla, I think, in it's just overall design, but it's, it's got that it's sort of fast look to it. It's, it's, it's a pretty hot car. I like it, you know, but um, you know, I won't be buying a Lucid uh, tax credit or not. It, it seems a little high for me. I don't know. I generally don't buy depreciating assets, uh, you know, because I'm a financial advisor. So I'm a used car guy. You know, that's I, I've all my cars that I've purchased in my life uh, have been used cars, and uh, I'll kind of stick that way. And it, there's a twofold reason to that. I mean, this is the fallacy of electric vehicles. You know, electric vehicles are green, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, you still have to manufacture them. And uh, the manufacturing process is not a green process. And the batteries that they put in there um, are not green per se. So, I mean, yes, it is green from the perspective of you driving your car around and not burning up gas all the time. But um, the way of making the car and everything is anything but green. And so that's my thought uh, behind it is if you're doing it for green reasons, 
you should buy a used car, even if it is gas powered, because your carbon footprint is far lower. Uh, but if you're going to go and, you know, want to spend the money and want to get it, get up to an EV, I mean, that's great. I, I think that EVs overall will be a net positive uh, for the environment and uh, for the country once we kind of move to that. Um, also keep in mind that uh, what is going to power your EV, uh, and that is that, you know, you, you put a charging station usually in your house um, if you have a home and you'll hook that up. So right now there's a, you know, fast charger by Tesla that you buy as an, as an upgrade. And then what is actually powering that charger. Um, you know, in, in many cases, it could just be coal. So you're kind of undoing the whole EV part of it. Now, if you've got, um, you know, if you bought the Tesla solar roof, which is awesome, I, I love the Tesla solar roof, wish I could buy one for myself. Uh, it seems a bit expensive at this point and my house is relatively new, but uh, you know, these solar panels that look like shingles and will provide the juice basically to power your Tesla and a lot of your home, uh, you know, Hey, I think that's a great idea. Um, if you had the means, unlimited means, you know, go put yourself a solar roof on and buy yourself a Tesla and charge that up there and leave the rest, have your power walls providing all the energy for you and you're in great shape. You don't even have to worry about like a storm uh, that's where it's negative 30 and it knocks out all your electricity. You got all your electricity just there. So it's it's pretty cool. It's, it's uh, incredible things going forward. Before we move on, I want to touch on a, a bit of legislation that's kind of out there right now, still in its introductory phases, but uh, there was actually, I think it was earlier this week, the Electric Cars Act of 2021. Um, it would eliminate the manufacturer cap and allow access to the credit for the next 10 years. The, uh, another piece of that legislation is that you would be able to use the tax credit over a five-year period, or you could even apply it at the dealership to just basically lower the price of the vehicle. So um, in addition to that, the only other part was really about um, incentivizing the charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. Do you see that legislation, even if it doesn't play out, how do you see something like that where if it were removed, that manufacturer cap, or if it, even if it were just raised to something like 600000 there was another piece of legislation out there that would have that would do that. Do you see that tilting the scales in the favor of of companies like Tesla and, and GM are kind of already at that, that level. I think it would help. Um, you know, I'm, there's always a reaction on the other side to that sort of legislation. So first of all, let's talk about that legislation specifically. I think that, um, overall removing the cap would obviously level the playing field from, from the perspective of it would again, you know, kind of push Tesla's, uh, to be adopted or if you really like the leaf or whatever, go ahead and buy that. But, um, you know, but like Tesla, that obviously helps them. Um, and, and it would help from the perspective of knowing that when you buy an EV, you're going to get a tax credit, no matter what you buy. I mean, that would, that would be helpful. One thing that is an issue is that when you go to the dealership, what they'll often say is, well, this Tesla costs $67,000. And you're like, oh, great. And then you're like, oh, wait, uh, the actual price is 75, but they're lopping the tax credit off front, but you still have to finance or pay for that extra amount. And you get that tax credit when you file your taxes. So it's not immediate. So it would actually be nice to be able to apply your tax credit immediately at the dealership and have that be a reduction, kind of like a dealer incentive. I think that would be very helpful because you wouldn't have to finance some of that, um, which most people are probably doing. They're financing some of that and, and it would be nice to come off right off the top. And, you know, I don't see a, a big negative to that from a, you know, it's, it's revenue neutral. I mean, obviously the tax credit um, is, is revenue negative for the government, but it's revenue neutral from the standpoint of whether I give it to you right up front at the dealership or whether you claim it on your taxes a little while later. So, um, I see that as being a nice thing. Now, 
the equal and opposite reaction of certain things that occur. Say we end up having this EV legislation. Well, obviously it's a boon to the EV makers. Um, and you know, it, it pushes people to adopt EV cars earlier. What it may do to gas powered cars is that it will reduce the amount of gas powered cars that are being produced a and B, it will likely have prices fall on those vehicles because they're going to be less desirable. More people will be trading up to EVs. Less people want gas-powered cars. That will drop the price of those gas-powered cars. So the valuation of that. So if I was going out and buying a gas-powered car this year, I would really have to give a thought of what I would buy. You know, if I'm going to buy a really standard vehicle, if I'm going to go out and buy a, you know, say I'm going to go out and buy a trailblazer you know it's a fine vehicle it's whatever but you know if they're going to replace the trailblazer with electric vehicles that that price may not hold up on that secondary market when it goes there so i think a if you look at it from a perspective that i do where i look at value a lot um, you may be able to get a really good deal on a car if you're riding your car out one of these people that rides it out to the 10 years and then it dies and then you could buy the new car and you hold it for 10 years well in a couple years from now when people are adopting a lot of EVs, you might be able to get great value on a used car that is gas powered, as long as you are okay with it being gas powered. Um, you know, so that's one thing to consider. The second thing to consider too, when buying an EV is that if battery technology increases, um, if the technology gets a lot better and all of a sudden say these solid, st solid state batteries become ubiquitous five years from now, that will likely really impact those electric vehicle prices significantly to the downside. Because uh, if you have a vehicle that goes 600 miles on a charge and you are trying to sell your vehicle that has 300 miles to the charge, how desirable is this vehicle? So you are kind of the valuation of your car is wrapped around your battery technology. So certain uh, electric vehicles have held up really well uh, in price, namely Tesla's and then others uh, like the leaf, um, you know, or the Volt, those have not held up very well. Um, you know, and so the valuation of those as battery technology has gotten better, they've become less and less desirable. Well, let's talk about that. That solid state battery technology was kind of the the emerging technology in, in, in that field. What do you see as the future? I know you, you kind of have some pretty good insight knowledge into that, that space. Yeah, I own a company in my own portfolio. So this is my disclosure um, that I own QuantumScape. Uh, QuantumScape is working on solid state battery technology. Um, their technology was uh, so good that somebody from Fisker stole it and ended up having to pay a little bit of cash um, as a result of, uh, you know, losing a court battle with QuantumScape. Um, you looked it up and you said it's what, 750 that they uh, had to pay? It was part of the settlement. So they, I don't think they disclosed the full amount of what they paid. So I'd imagine it was probably a, that was probably a small fraction of what they actually <laughs> paid QuantumScape for. Uh, for that settlement. There you go. So, so take in mind that Fisker decided to, they, they had an employee or whatever that sort of stole trade secrets. They tried to produce their own solid state battery and beat quantum scape to the game. Um, and, uh, then they ended up, they, the guy from Fisker, they've since dropped their plans for solid state batteries stating that it's great. You know, they tried to get it there they got it 90% of the way there to getting the solid state battery produced. And then the other 10% was so remarkably difficult uh, that they eventually just threw in the towel and decided not to do it. Now, just so you can kind of, you know, what is a solid state battery? Well, it's one, I liken it to kind of the hard drive, the old hard drives, you know, in a computer had these moving parts inside of it and the storage inside of it was being like accessed really. And it was really, uh, you know, a moving piece inside of the hard drive. If you guys remember 
uh, you know, it, it would click when you got a really old hard drive and you knew that your hard drive was going to die. That was a bad moment when you could hear that clicking inside of there. That was your hard drive just going to crap. So what's going to happen is, um, you know, it got ripped replaced basically by um, solid state hard drives. And the solid state hard drive was essentially, you know, kind of like your thumb drive, only much bigger inside of a computer. Um, And it was able to access that without the moving parts. It was able to immediately access, um, you know, your storage. It's kind of similar as far as a solid state battery goes. And the thinking behind solid state batteries is that um, they could be swapped out as well really quickly um, as far as charging goes. And it would hold a charge a lot longer, um, somewhat uh, reducing the need to always refill. You know, right now, the issue with electric vehicles is that even a fast charge, um, you know, isn't really that fast. Um, And if you just do a regular trickle charge on it, just a normal outlet charge, it could take you eight to 10 hours to just cycle your car up to, um, you know, close to full power. So that sort of time that you have to invest in charging um, is the major hurdle of electric vehicles right now. And hopefully we get there with uh, the battery technology and solid state might be where it goes. Yeah, it's just uh, looking at QuantumScape's website. It's fascinating just to learn a little bit more about that. I mean, not knowing anything about the, the technical components of solid state batteries before, you know, a couple of days ago when I looked into that just to prepare for the podcast. But you, you have multiple problems that are kind of working in opposite directions in the case of a solid state battery because you need it to charge quickly, like you said, but, um, you know, it also needs to last the life of the vehicle. In most cases, you're not, not like a, a typical gas power car where you're swapping out batteries every couple of years. You need it to, to last the life of the vehicle. And it also needs to, which is a problem in Wisconsin, last uh, across the temperature spectrum from, you know, negative 30 or negative 40, whatever it gets to in the winter to, you know, whatever that car operates when it, you know, when it gets warm. So, you know, there's several problems they need to address. They're working in opposite directions. And so, you know, who knows what the, the future is looking like here for solid state batteries. But, you know, as you said, they could really change the game if, you know, if they get to a point where it's six, 700 miles per, per charge. Yeah, that would, that would change everything, right? If you could do the cross country trip and uh, only have to charge it once or twice and charge it quickly, um, that would change the whole game. And that's where you'll see the uh, adoption throughout the whole entire country when something I, you know, for me hitting the 300 mile mark was a big mark, uh, because, you know, anyone that's traveling around, you know, their communities and having a fairly heavy driving day is likely not to hit that threshold. And, you know, just because they say it's 300 doesn't mean you're getting 300 in the cold. Um, you know, these batteries drain a little faster. If you're riding them like a maniac, if you're getting the Tesla plaid version, uh, you know, you might be draining that battery a little faster, which is the one that goes, I think it's zero to 60 in under three seconds. I mean, it's just unfathomably fast, um, for some of these cars. Um, and so, you know, if you do that, if you ride it hard, you're not going to get that whole 300, but the 300 was really a, a big benchmark. And if you could get it to five, 600, I mean, then, then you take the worry out of the charging, um, in it and you can easier plan for that sort of thing. And I think that the people that also, um, are probably considering the purchase, but they don't know how they're going to make it work logistically would be a lot of city dwellers. So, you know, oftentimes you don't have a garage. If you're living in Chicago or New York, you have your car parked and street parking. How are you going to go about getting charging uh, accomplished for yourself on a regular basis um, when you don't have a garage? I think that will be, uh, that is a huge issue um, right now. And so they're trying to figure that all out. Um, And that's where 
know, I've read in a number of articles and they're working on this in China. How can you swap out the batteries um, quickly, you know, within, within minutes and being able to provide you a full charge um, to be able to last you a day or two? Um, if you could do that, then I think you'd see more adoption in the cities where, it, you know, you can't just go in and find a charging. There aren't that many charging stations right now. So, I mean, if you see more and more adoption, you're going to see more and more charging stations being used. And then you just have to plan your day around charging. Whereas, you know, gas powered car, you know, we're Americans, we like things easy. So we want to pull up, fill up and get out. So how are we going to accomplish that, um, on an EV situation, in an EV situation? So hopefully we, we get that worked out in the number in the next few years. And we're talking about Quantascape, like that's, they're talking about that being done you know, five years from now or more. So, I mean, that technology has a ways to go before we actually see it in a car. You know, the piece of that, that whole technology conversation is the, the semiconductors, what people are calling chips uh, in those cars. There are in a, a lot of things, you know, 5G smartphones. And I mean, even in old cars, there are things called semi-controllers that are in, you know, your older vehicles, but it's becoming more of an issue now because of COVID, because of supply strain constraints. Can you dive a little bit more into what you're seeing there. Yeah. I mean, across the board, supply chain issues, um, due to the pandemic are real. Uh, I think that they will work themselves out in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. However, in the chip uh, supply situation, um, you know, with these semiconductor companies, that is a, a real problem because you are right. Chips are in everything now. I mean, everything that you pick up seems to have a chip now. And, and then these 5g phones have uh, multiple chips. And so the processing speed that is needed now for a lot of these different things and cars, if you can imagine, you know, these things are no longer um, even transportation. They're more big computers driving around. And so I, I think that with that and 5g, you're just going to see that the demand for these chips is exploding right now and it's only going to continue. Now, the greatest thing about us having a market-driven economy and a lot of other countries the same way is that this will work itself out. Um, you'll start to see more and more chip makers um, or the existing chip makers find ways to produce more chips. Um, and that will, it'll be technological things. It'll be supply chain things that get worked out and you'll start to see these perk back up. Um, you know, there are obviously rare earth issues there too, because there's a lot of mining that has to occur to get some of these special things. Um, you know, in batteries, you have lithium, um, in chips you have, um, uh, now it's escaping me, but, um, you know, you have a lot of rare earth uh, in situations where you, you, these go into chips and we need to uh, make sure that we get enough supply of that. Otherwise they can't happen. So, um, we'll see what happens in the future, but I, I think that'll be worked out, but, um, there are some geopolitical risks in there as well. Uh, because you know, China, uh, is controlling a lot of that, um, rare earth material and, um, you know, maybe we'll find other areas or other places or have technology not rely so much on those sorts of things because of, uh, technological developments. Well, you have just, just throw some stats out there. You have the U S hosts 12% of global semiconductor manufacturing. That's all, all chips and not just um, ones for cars, but just to give you an idea of how much is being done in the U.S. versus a company in Taiwan, TSMC, 70% of the global auto industry's supply of the the microcontrollers, which is um, predominantly what are in cars. So, I mean, it's it's concentrated pretty heavily in just to, into one company, which obviously affects the supply chain if it's only coming from predominantly one place. But one other stat I wanted to throw out there, I didn't really have an idea of how many were in one car, the Audi Q7, 
38 microcontrollers, and it's eight different companies that produce the 38 microcontrollers that are in an Audi Q7. So it's you don't really think about it until you get into the nitty-gritty of of what goes into these cars. And like you said, they're big moving computers at this point, um, and it's not really so much the auto industry anymore. It's the technology industry to a de- to degree because of what's being put into these cars. Yeah, and I'm just reading a Reuters article here that says, rare earths are used in, in rechargeable batteries for electric and hybrid cars, advanced ceramics, computers, DVD players, wind turbines, catalysts in cars and oil, oil refineries, monitors, televisions, lighting, lasers, fiber optics, superconductors, and glass polishing. Several rare earth elements such as neodymium and dysprosium are critical to the motors used in electric vehicles. So I don't know what those things are. All I know is that China has a lot of that stuff and we need it. So, I mean, keeping good trade relations would be uh, quite important um, to try to get those rare earth uh, materials. You know, as we wrap the podcast uh, in all the different areas we've covered from technology to just what's on the market, when you look at the next couple months, year and a half, even several years down the road, where do you see this conversation or how do you see it shaping up here? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you're um, discussing. From an investing perspective, I would say that if you're looking at an investment in an electric vehicle company or companies, um, and there's a lot of different things to invest in there. You know, you talk about semiconductor, uh, semiconductors. You're, there are actually um, sensor companies. There's a like a laser company um, where they, they have laser sensors on the cars. Um, that's a little different. Actually, Elon Musk hates that technology um, and he's competing with, with this other, you know, because he uses sonar and there's laser technology. And then there's also obviously the production of EVs and all these EV companies, um, some of which you can get in, you know, by directly, if they're publicly traded, you can buy them. And then also some of them are through SPACs, which are special, special purchase acquisition companies. Um, so, you know, there's a bunch of ways to invest in all of these and some of them are just private. Um, I would issue a word of caution on them. The valuations are very stretched right now as far as, you know, if you look at the balance sheet, it's not going to make sense to you. You know, you are buying future earnings. Um, you know, you have to have high conviction in these things. It could take a long time to get um, your investment uh, back. It, they're highly volatile. All of those sorts of high risk sort of disclosures that I want to have on it. However, I own some, you know, I own, uh, I'll be upfront. I'll disclose what I own. I own some Lordstown Motors, which is ticker symbol ride. I own some I own some Piedmont lithium. I own, um, my son owns some Tesla. Um, you know, so does my daughter, I think, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a situation where, you know, I have some of this, I do believe in it myself. I've been researching it. Um, you know, it's a situation, just be careful on your allocation and what you're trying to accomplish with this. Now, from a, from a adoption perspective, I think you're going to see this is the year where they're going to start, start giving the cars out to the public and we get to see what these major car companies have unfolding. And then we're going to see like the lucid is going to be an extremely high, you know, a high cost car and things like that, that they have the cachet cars. And then they have the ones that everybody else will be driving. You're going to start to see that in 2021. I think you're going to see the, and then the adoption will follow that. So 2022, 2023, 2024, you're just going to see this acceleration of adoption of these. And then the exciting thing is that by 2030, it seems like most of these car companies are going to be all the way there. So it has happened that we are transitioning to electric vehicles. It's just how fast this will occur. And this is going to be adopted throughout the whole entire United States. And, you know, not every car in 2030 driving around is going to be an EV, 
but a significant portion of them will be, and the new cars will replace the old cars. And, um, you know, you're going to see that, that, you know, the way that we consume that sort of thing will change. And I, I do think that self-driving capabilities will, will have, will also change the game again, as far as you probably will be more of a subscription on a car than actually own the car. Um, but you know, that's another podcast topic someday. The, the Netflix of, of driving will be the future. Maybe who knows? Well, Volvo has a subscription model already and a couple other car companies have subscriptions, but, uh, I, I really think that you're going to start to see subscription where you, you call it up on Uber and just shows up your door. Um, you know, and you get a certain vehicle fleet that you get, um, to have, you know, at your beck and call. And I think that that will be really cool. And then you'll go on your self-driving car, um, where I can actually turn around in the front seat and play a game with my kids while, you know, I take them to, or maybe they can, my five-year-old right now, you know, if they were five at the time could summon an Uber themselves and drive themselves to daycare. I mean, how nice would that be? <laughs> Don't have to worry about it anymore. It's Don't have to worry about it anymore. Part of your life. There you go, Hadley. <laughs> Here's the phone. Call yourself a ride. I think it would freak them out at daycare. All of a sudden, like, she just shows up at the front door. Where's your dad? I'm in my Uber. Like, what do you want? It'll be like, you know, I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. <laughs> and and they might never come back because they'll call themselves an Uber. And then it's true. they'll be gone. So it's, I guess, the the threat is is a lot more meaningful now than it used to be back. I'll back get my parental con- controls and send them back. <laughs> send them right back. That'll be so fun. They think they're, like, able to get out of the house. And I'll call recall the car. It's an interesting sphere. I mean, even the security side of that, I mean, there's there's opportunities to be involved in the the EV, as we joke about it, there's opportunities to be involved in that EV space, you know, from a lot of different angles, even as we, we talk about it now. So, I mean, it's interesting to see how that will shape up. I mean, you mentioned Uber, too. How are they going to be involved or, or Lyft or, you know, other companies like that that are going to get into this self-driving EV space, too. So, I mean, it's interesting well, to see next couple of years. Apple's been talking about getting in their own EV car. You know, that's... They're working on partners to produce their own EV. I mean, maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't, but I mean, you know, I, I will never count Apple out in any of these situations. And if anybody's going to build a car, um, that's just going to be like a, you know, they, they're never an early adopter. They always wait and see, and then they produce the better widget. So maybe they're the better version of Tesla. I don't know. You know, and, and actually, as an aside, I know this is a long podcast, but they're, they're going to 3D print these cars. You know, it's, that's kind of what's happening in these gigafactories in Tesla. What they're doing is they're really trying to produce this car all in one fell swoop. So you're, you're starting to see all this stuff get built. Um, and, and these gigafactories are incredible because they really give uh, the shell of the car is already done. So there's less moving parts and pieces. Um, if you looked at what it takes to actually put together a car, like you said, the Audi, there are like thousands of pieces on these cars to put them together, but these EVs now they're trying to produce them so that there's very little of that. Um, there's mass customization that's involved in these cars, but still it's all getting produced at the same point with a lot less pieces. So there's a lot less to break. So uh, I think that makes that will drop the price of the cars um, and make um, you know, these EVs have, have less they've seen so far less service um, than say a gas powered car. And that would make sense because there's not as many moving parts and not as much as heating up on the vehicle. It's more of the battery pack heating up versus, um, you know, you've got a lot of different things around the engine that are heating up and, and cooling down over a long period of time. And that's, that's adds to things breaking and snapping. And here you just don't have that on EVs. It'd be nice for my 2005 Corolla. There you go. Maybe the next car EV. 
Let's hope so. That's that's the only car I'll buy. Just kidding. <laughs> Going for the Hummer next, so I mean, I'll need that raise uh, in, in advance. You know. <laughs> Coming up, Dan. Coming up. Yeah. Well, you mentioned it was a long podcast, and we could probably go all day on this subject. I mean, it's fascinating for for people who want to check out more. There is Clint's blog on the website uh, on WalknerCondon.com about the year of the electric vehicle, which might just be 2021. Clint, thank you for all your expertise, though, on this subject, and we'll talk to you soon. Walkner Condon Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor with the SEC. The opinions expressed by the participants of this podcast are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Walkner Condon Financial Advisors. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific security investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. Thanks for listening, and for further information, please visit walknercondon.com.